We're going to start today on the topic of unconditional election, which is the U, T with total depravity. Now we're into the U of the tulip, unconditional election. And uh, this will probably take three weeks. We'll see exactly how long, but probably three weeks. And the third week, we may deal with some objections and some, some questions and things that come up uh, naturally, I think, as a, res- as a response to this topic. So uh, for right now, uh, Greg, could you open us in prayer, and then uh, we will dive in. Yeah, let's, let's pray. Our Father, it is, again, a, a great privilege to be able to uh, gather together, Lord, as your children, to study your word. Uh, God, we are so thankful for the salvation and the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, hope in life and in death, uh, hope beyond the grave. Lord, we're thankful that our Savior has conquered death for us, that we might have life. And God, we thank you for the, the great privilege of studying this doctrine of salvation, the sovereignty of God in salvation. Lord, what a weighty, glorious subject. And I pray, Father, that you'll help us all have humility as we approach this, Lord, give us teachable, submissive hearts to your word above all, because that is the deciding factor, not what we feel, not what we want, but what you say. And so, Lord, help us to bow our knee to to what you clearly teach in your word. Um, And Lord, help us up here to be clear in what we say. Lord, help us be confident and speak with conviction. Help us be humble and gracious, but Lord, unwavering when it comes to uh, what your word says. So we just commit our hearts, our minds, and this time to you. Please be glorified in it, and Lord, help us better uh, glory in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and in your sovereign goodness because of our time today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I've mentioned how uh, I was going to mention well-known Christians from the past and how they've sort of come to terms with this doctrine over time. So now today I want to mention uh, Charles Spurgeon. We obviously know Spurgeon. He's one of our favorites around here. And uh, Spurgeon lived, he became a Christian in 1850 and died in the 1890s and uh, was in London. Here's what Spurgeon says, quote, when I was coming to Christ, I thought I was doing it all myself. And though I sought the Lord earnestly, I had no idea the Lord was seeking me. I do not think the young convert is at first aware of this, I can recall the very day and hour when first I received those truths about election in my own soul, and I can recollect how I felt that I had grown on a sudden from a babe into a man, that I had made progress in scriptural knowledge through having found once for all that clue to the truth of God. One weeknight when I was sitting in the house of God, the thought struck me, how did you come to be a Christian? I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? Well, the truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I prayed, thought I, but then I asked myself, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. How came I to read the scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? Then in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all and that he was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me. And from that doctrine, I have not departed to this day and I desire to make this my constant confession, I ascribe my change wholly to God. And then he, just to use the word Calvinism, here's what he says. He says, I am Calvinistic, but I believe nothing merely because Calvin taught it, but because I have found his teaching in the word of God. 
And I have my own private opinion that there is no such thing as preaching Christ and Him crucified unless you preach what is nowadays called Calvinism. It is a nickname to call it Calvinism. Calvinism is the gospel and nothing else. So uh, uh, it's a pretty strong statement there. And he's not saying that if you're not a Calvinist, you can't preach the true gospel. He's simply saying that the gospel in its fullness includes depravity and election and how we understand the atonement and God's grace and perseverance. So ultimately, uh, we would understand the fullest understanding of the gospel would be uh, the, the more reformed understanding of the gospel. So let's look here at a text of Scripture, um, and this is Acts chapter 13. Paul is preaching uh, in the synagogue, starting verse 38, and here's what it says. It says, uh, Paul says, "'Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed, or justified, from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses.'" Now, do you see here the universal offer of the gospel? Everyone who believes is freed. Everyone who believes, anyone who believes is freed from what they cannot be freed from the law of Moses. Now, skip down to verse 46. This is the very next week. Many gather uh, to, hear G- to hear Paul preach about Jesus. Look at verse 46. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. That's the Jews in the synagogue. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so uh, so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And then verse 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed." Some thoughts from you guys uh, on this verse in particular. Verse 48, what, what are we seeing here as Paul preaches the gospel? Uh, he, the, the Jewish people largely turn against it. A lot of Gentiles rejoice in it. And you have this amazing phrase, as many as were appointed to eternal life believe. I, any thoughts on how this sheds light on the doctrine of election? Uh, I, I want to hear Greg so badly on this, but it's just one of my favorites. It would just seem like, in the way we normally think about it, and, and even if we've loved this doctrine for a while, it would seem like it, it would read, as many as who believed were appointed to eternal life. Because that's just in our kind of man-centeredness, that's how you would think about it, or how even what Spurgeon was saying, he first thought about it. But, um, but he clearly says the opposite, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. I think it's a... Um, kind of an open and shut case there, Greg? Yeah, I totally agree. It is open and shut. I mean, this is one of those texts, like you really have to try to do gymnastics with what the text is saying in order to make it say what it's not saying. And it's clear that there's an appointment to eternal life, and those who received that appointment were the ones who believed. And the order of the words is important. You can't switch that around to where, like you said, like the way we're conditioned to think is, well, as many as were believed were appointed to eternal life. No, that's not what it says. Um, and, and I think, you know, we, we keep in mind all that, that we've already, I mean, we're looking at John 6, we're looking at other places already, like the, the evidence is overwhelming that for Paul to speak this way, it's actually, or Luke to write this, um, it's nothing new in the Bible, the way the Bible talks about this. This is, it's, it's continuing a stream of teaching that is clear that the reason ultimately behind our belief, the way Spurgeon said it at the bottom of it all, it's God. God started the process. And if he starts the process, it is effectual. It's going to happen. And therefore, there are specific ones 
that were appointed, and it's those specific ones who believed. And you think, I hadn't thought about this until reading it this time, but let's say that it was, and maybe I'm jumping the gun there, I hope not, but let's say it was that God looked down the corridor a time and saw, oh yeah, these people will, and these people will, and so I will choose them, which isn't at all the way it happened. Paul certainly isn't one that you would look at and say he's likely. The guy's killing Christians for a living, right? Yeah. That's where he's coming from here. And so um, you, you wouldn't think that, uh, you know, as, as Luke is writing this um, in Paul's ministry here, Paul wouldn't be one that you would say, nor would any of us. That's the beauty of this. If we go back to our last two weeks, all of us in our depravity, God could have looked down the corridor of time, and had he chosen by that view or because of that, then no one's saved because none of us were looking like, oh, yeah, that's a pretty good guy. There was no good guys. That's the, that's the beauty of this all is that God chose us out of our depravity and, and out of our mess. Yeah, just one, one more word here on the, on the verse. Just, I know you can tell what it says, but I think it's worth saying a, another word about it. It doesn't say God appointed them all to eternal life and some believed. Right? That's not, some people want to try to get it that way. That, that doesn't work because it says as many as were appointed to eternal life. That's the exact same group that believed. And you, you can't say, and I, I've read Arminian takes on this verse and it does not, I mean, it, I'm not trying to be mean. It just doesn't work. Uh, the, the, the response is, okay, God only, um, God, God, our believing is the reason of God's appointment. But again, this verse says it exactly the opposite. And so I think that this statement right here is very strong. The exact group and exactly as many and only as many as we're appointed to eternal life, that's the exact same group that responded with faith. And so it's God's appointment that led to faith, invincibly, definitely. It is not faith that led to the appointment. I think that's, that's the difference, really, between what you classically call Calvinism and Arminianism, that how you answer that question is going to determine one side or the other. And let, let me just give you, these are real quick here, bullet points that Piper gave to this verse, this passage. Here, here are six things we learn, real quick, just on the screen. Number one, election is not based on foreseen faith. It can't be, because faith is caused by God's appointment. So, so election is not based on foreseen faith. Election is the cause of our faith, right? So that's number one. That's verse 48. Number two, your faith is owing to God's appointing you to life. Your faith is credited not ultimately to your free will decision. Of course, you did exert your will to believe. That is true. But the ultimate reason your will was willing to believe is because God appointed it. God worked in your heart in such a way to give you new desires so that you were willing to believe. So your faith is ultimately owing to God's appointment of you to life. Number three, we were rescued by God from rejecting Jesus with all our heart and will. We were rescued, you and I, if we're Christians, were rescued by God from rejecting Jesus with all of our heart and will. And you might say, where, where is that in the text? Well, look back with me at verse 46. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, but since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. You see, left to ourselves, what do we all do with the gospel? We thrust it aside because we love the darkness rather than the light. And so when the light comes in, we always repel against it because I don't want the light. It exposes mm -hmm. my evil. I don't want my evil exposed naturally. Well, what makes us willing to have our evil exposed and to be completely transformed? The new birth, God intervening, God, God changing us from darkness to life. So we're rescued by God from our own bad decisions. Number four, 
The gospel is to be offered freely to everyone. The gospel is to be offered freely to everyone. Again, look back at verse 38. Through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed. The offer of the gospel is for all human beings. If you will believe in Jesus, you will be justified, you will be forgiven, you will be saved right here, right now. And we know that the only way anyone will do that is if God appoints them to eternal life and they believe. But that does not change the fact that there is a real and genuine offer of the gospel to all human beings. That, that is, that is an essential New Testament teaching. And then next you've got this. Number five, God has ordained evangelism as a means to bring his elect to faith. God has ordained our evangelism, our sharing, as a means to bring his elect to faith. And just look at the very next chapter, 14.1 of Acts. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue, and here's evangelism. They spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Did God use Paul and his friends as a real means of preaching the gospel to bring about real faith and real salvation in those who listened? Yes. And as many as were appointed to eternal life always believe. But that doesn't mean our sharing is irrelevant. Our sharing is essential. God ordains the means and the end. So their speaking and our evangelism is uh, an essential means to bringing the elect to faith. And here's the last point, number six. We, you know, who, who are the elect? We discover who the elect are. How do we know who's elect? We discover who the elect are when they respond to the gospel in faith. When, when someone responds in faith to Jesus, that is evidence that they are one of the elect, that God has appointed them to eternal life and they believe. And the only way you know, now you got, please hear me on this. This is so important because we, we can become fatalistic in our thinking, which is a fault, faulty way of thinking. <clears throat> you say, well, what if my son or brother-in-law or my uncle or my grandfather, what if they're just not elect, right? Don't, don't go there. Here's why. Here's why. The only way you know someone for sure is not among God's people is if they die rejecting the gospel. Up until the last moment of life, you don't know. And so what do you do? You passionately persuade and preach and teach and pray. And as Spurgeon says, lay down on the pathway to hell and make them crawl over you as a blocking point on their pathway to hell. Do everything you can. Uh, Paul says, I became all things to all people that by every means possible I could win some. Uh, be, be zealous because for all I know, this person could be a thief on the cross who gets converted in the last half hour of his life. How do you know? I mean, we know John Dean's great evangelist. He just went to heaven a year ago. John Dean's had an unbelieving father. His entire adult life, his dad was a bold-faced rejecter of Jesus. Straight up said, I don't believe in Jesus. I don't want to talk about Jesus. And John kept evangelizing his dad. His dad ends up basically in hospice care in the hospital. His dad has a matter of, of weeks left to live. John comes in there and finally, he said he was in there for hours talking to his dad. His dad's barely responsive. And all of a sudden, his dad uh, is moved to a point of it looks like real repentance. And from that point on until he died, the last couple of days of his life or so, there seemed to be a complete change in his countenance, his face, everything about him changed. And we believe he was probably truly converted in the last few days of his life. So don't ever say, well, what if they're just not elect? Who cares? No, 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 no. You don't know who they are until they repent and believe the gospel, and until their dying breath, you don't know what God may do. So don't ever lose hope while there is still breath in the person that we, that we love. So what you're saying here for sure is this doctrine will never excuse us to, uh, to not share the gospel, or it doesn't take us off the hook from being, um, we're very responsible to go and pray. In Romans 10, 13 to 17, we won't turn there now probably, but that certainly is a great passage 
that shows that God is sovereign over the ends, but also the means. Yes. So let's turn to Romans 9. Guys, I apologize for my voice. I got a little cold here that I'm trying to deal with. But Romans chapter 9. And Romans 9 is just famous for its, maybe infamous, for its treatment of the issue of, of God's sovereignty and salvation. And maybe we could just read and go as we move, uh, instead of reading it all at once. But Greg, could you take us through the first five verses here? Yeah. All right. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse <clears throat> number 1. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Wow. So, what's going on here, guys? Um, this is all set up. This is all set up for what, you know, the, the meat of what Paul's going to talk about in verses 6 through, I don't know, really through the end of chapter 11. Um, you know, we, we talk about this doctrine of election, and I think Romans 9 is one of the clearest places in the Bible that this is taught. Um, but I think one of the things we need to take away from verses 1 through 5, especially verse 2 and 3, is that a robust belief in the doctrine of election is not contrary to a brokenheartedness for the lostness of the world. Mm. I mean, you, no one, I think, I mean, obviously Jesus, but I'm like, in terms, humanly speaking, I mean, Paul gets the sovereignty of God in election, um, and he is absolutely broken over the lostness of so many of his fellow Jews. I mean, look again at the language that he uses. Verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. <clears throat> He's talking about the way he feels because so many Jews are rejecting Jesus. And I mean, not all, again, we're all wired a little differently. Not all of us are going to be, you know, some of us are just, we don't weep as easily, others we do. But there should be a, a grief in our souls mm -hmm. over the lost condition of those without Christ. Like we should be burdened for them. Paul, I mean, not, again, not every moment of every day, but we should have moments where we experience this great sorrow and unceasing anguish in our hearts. And Paul, again, verse 3, he, he's speaking hypothetically here because he just taught Romans 8. He knows nothing can separate him from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But so desirous is Paul for the salvation of his fellow Jews that he would say, for I could wish, meaning I know I can't, but I could wish that I myself were cursed, anathema, and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul wants to see his fellow Jews saved. And he is about to explain why so many don't believe right now. He's going to get into the doctrine of individual election unto salvation as the bottom reason why so many Jews are not believing. But he doesn't dwell in the eternal counsel of God. He dwells in the fact that at the human level, they refuse Jesus. Look real quickly at the beginning of chapter 10. Mm -hmm. Again, Paul comes back to this. 
He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, the Jews, is that they may be saved. And so if, if, if in teaching through this, we find in our hearts a lessening of the burden for lost people, then we've not understood this doctrine right. Yeah. We just have not. Um, it's, it's possible to get there if we take this and we say, well, God chooses and I really don't need to feel burdened for the lost. I really don't need to show any initiative in evangelism. You know, I can just kick back and relax. God's going to save who will. No, that is not the conclusion we come to. It is not. And if you find that in yourself, you need to repent. That is a horrible place to be in if, if you or I say, well, you know, I don't need to worry about the lost condition of sinners around me. Can I, just um, yeah, interjecting there. Let's not forget that Romans 9 is in the middle of a letter called Romans that is originally a missionary support letter. We often forget this, right? Romans 15, why did Paul write the letter? I make it my ambition to preach Christ where Christ has not already been named. And he says, I'm hoping to come see you guys as I'm heading to Spain to share Christ where he's never been named. So the whole point of Romans is, guys, I got to come to Rome first. I want to encourage you. I want you to encourage me. And then I want you guys to financially and spiritually send me on to the frontier missions where Christ has never been named in Spain. And so let's make sure our theology is lined up. Here's what I believe, Romans. Okay, I want to see what you guys believe. Okay, let's, let's match up here. So Ro Romans 9 is in the middle of a missionary support letter mm -hmm. where Paul is going to give his life literally to share Christ with people who've never heard of him. So if we read it to go, fatalism, it doesn't matter what I do, yeah. Paul would look at you and say, it's a missionary letter. That's what Romans is. Don't, don't misuse Romans like that. So just, just agreeing with what you're saying. Yeah. All, yeah. Um, all right. Look at verse four and five. So here's, here's the thing. This is where Paul starts to get into, um, actually look at verse six. Okay. Here, here's, here's why this matters. He says, it is not as though the word of God has failed. Why would Paul even begin to say that, like even bring that up as an issue for discussion, that God's word would fail. It would literally fall to the ground or run off course like a ship um, that lost its rudder. It's just wandering. Like, why would Paul feel the need to say that? Because he just talked about Romans chapter eight. And if you're in Christ, you are invincibly secure forever in Christ. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing can separate you because of the work that Christ has done. You are absolutely secure. And then Paul says, look, all these Jews, they're not believing. I'm burdened over it. I mean, if, any, if anybody should have gotten it, it was the Jews. Is, it, is the reason why the Jews aren't believing in Jesus because God's word has failed? I mean, because look, four and five. What, what did the Jews have as a privilege and an advantage for them? It says, they are Israelites, to them belong, number one, the adoption, number two, the glory, number three, the covenants, number four, the giving of the law, number five, the worship, number six, the promises, number seven, the patriarchs, and then eight, the kicker of all, Christ came from their race according to the flesh. Those eight things right there that if anybody was going to receive the promises, it was going to be the Jews. And now they're rejecting the very Messiah that they were supposed to usher in. And Paul's like, look, that doesn't mean God's word has failed. It doesn't mean his word has failed. And we have to ask the question, and that's what Paul starts to deal with. If so many Jews who had all these privileges, they're the ones through whom Jesus came. If they're rejecting him, we have to ask why. Mm -hmm. And that's what verse six gets into. Look again. He says, it is not as though the word of God has failed for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. 
Oh my goodness, what did Paul just do? Let's just read a little bit more and then we'll start working through this. Look at, look at verse 7. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac your off, shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Just pause right there, okay? So we know Israel, they're God's chosen people, right? But the majority of them aren't, aren't accepting Christ. They're not believing. They're rejecting their own Messiah. Why is that? Because not all Israel is Israel. Does it make sense? So there's, there's ethnic corporate Israel, and then there's this true Israel in the midst of that to whom the promises were truly made. Those are the ones who received the promise. They're the ones who, who are the heirs, and therefore God's promise was never broken. And God wasn't duplicitous or decept, deceitful either. That's the whole point of what he's going to be saying here in verses um, 6 through 13. This is actually how it's been the entire time. It was never ultimately intended for the whole nation, the entire ethnic group known as the Jews. There was this true Israel in the midst of that. They were always the recipients of the promise. Go ahead. That's a great point. So you've got true Israel, which God has promised to save. And you've got the larger group, ethnic Israel, that God is not guaranteeing are going to be saved. And here's what Paul's saying. Guys, God has never promised that every ethnic Israelite will go to heaven. God never promised that. He promised that true Israel, those who truly know me, will, will, will be saved. That's what he promised. And then he, sh he demonstrates from examples in the Old Testament, God selecting one over another, apart from works, in the Old Testament. And he gives two very obvious examples. The first one here is Isaac and Ishmael. He doesn't name Ishmael, but I, it's implied. Look again at, at verse, um, verse 7. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your children be named. Now, do you see this? Did Abraham have two sons? He had more than that, right? But he had at least the two famous ones. He had Ishmael, and Abraham even said, God, let Ishmael be the one who inherits the promise. Let him live before you. And God said, no, no. I'm going to create the line of promise supernaturally in a way that you can't. I'm going to allow your 90-year-old wife to conceive and bear a child because children of true Israel are born of God. They're not born of human ability. They're born of me stepping in and giving life where it's impossible, right? That's how, that's how you become a Christian. It's when God does the impossible and brings about life when you can't have life, right? So uh, God brings about Isaac miraculously, but then Paul knows there's a loophole left in his argument. Because anybody could object and say, of course God chose Isaac. He had a Jewish mother, Sarah. Ishmael did not have a Jewish mother. He had an Egyptian mother, right? Hagar. So of course God preferred the one. It still has to do with ethnicity. That's why God chooses. And Paul says, well, let me seal off the loophole with the next illustration. Isaac grows up and gets married to Rebekah, who are both truly Jewish. They're both from Abraham's descendancy. Verse 8 Paul says, this means it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as his offspring. For this is what the promise said about uh, this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. So it's a supernatural thing with Isaac. Now we get to Isaac's children. Verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children, twins, by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob, I love, but Esau, I hated. Now, 
Um, Greg, lead us here through what, what, how does that uh, help Paul with his argument? Well, it's like you said, with, with um, Isaac and Ishmael, um, you know, you can say, well, Ishmael wasn't of, of the right mother. But with uh, Jacob and Esau, it's the same mom. Like, they're not even born yet, but they're both from the same mom. So you can't do anything about ethnicity. Like, there, there is, is one ethnically as they can be because they have the exact same two parents. And so what Paul is saying is like, look, it's, it's, not, it's not just like what, we, what I said with, with Isaac and Ishmael, but even more, you got two children from the same womb born basically at the same time. Um, it's, it's not based even then on who the firstborn is. Because look at, it's uh, verse 12, the older will serve the younger. We're very familiar with that story. You know, Rebecca, she feels the, you know, like conflict within and um, you know, one hand comes out and, you know, and then, you know, whatever. And then Esau comes, he's hairy. And then Jacob comes um, and, and she is told the older is going to serve the younger. And it's like that completely goes against convention. Like the younger is always the first or the oldest is the firstborn. They're the ones who receive the inheritance. And God's like, uh, no, not in this case, not in this case at all. And so what, why was it that Jacob received the, the promises and not Esau? It's because of God's promise because of God's choice of Jacob um, beforehand. And you can't say, well, God looked ahead and saw that Jacob, you know, Jacob wasn't a great guy, but Esau, he was really a goof off and all he wanted to do was go out in the field and hunt and not take any responsibility. So they weren't, either one of them weren't really sterling examples of faithfulness um, in some ways. So why was it, why is it that Jacob got it? Was it because he was cunning and he cheated Esau out of it? Not ultimately. Ultimately, he got what he did because God chose him for it. And you see, God's choice is always effective in how it's worked out um, in everyday life. Let, let me, let me yeah, jump in ahead. right there. So look back at, it's on the screen as well. Look back here at verse uh, 10. So, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. Now verse 11 here is going to tell us how God made the choice. Why did he choose Jacob and pass over Esau? And Paul goes out of his way. He's not going to waste words. Paul mm -hmm. gives these words on purpose. And before I read it, just in case you're, if you, if you get lost here, just here's the point. Here's the question we're asking. If, if, if Arminianism is true, election of by God is conditional on what we, he knew we were going to do in the future. He knew you were going to be a good person. He knew you're going to believe one day. If he knew what you were going to do in the future, he then chose you on that basis. Is that what we see in this text? Or do we see the opposite? Do we see unconditional election that God shows them apart from anything they had done or would do? That's what we're looking for. So verse 11, though they, Jacob and Esau, were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Now let's just test this verse in our minds here, okay? I don't think the test is that hard. Is God choosing Jacob because he knew Jacob was going to do something virtuous in the future? No. Is God choosing Jacob because he saw that he was going to have great faith in the future? No. If Paul wanted to communicate that, this is the perfect moment to say God knew that Jacob would be a believer and Esau would reject the gospel and therefore God chose Jacob. And then I would be an Arminian if that's what that verse said. I would be, a, I'd be an Arminian because that's what the Bible would be teaching. But the Bible doesn't teach that. What does the Bible say? Again, one more time, verse 11. You can't see it too many times. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, 
not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. So I don't think Paul could say it more clearly. Can I make a comment on that? This kind of kind of struck me. God doesn't come up with stuff on the spot either. Like, you know, it's not like he's waiting to see, hmm, who am I going to pick? They're almost born. I need to figure this out. Oh, let's go with the younger. No, he, he told her, he told Rebecca, the older will serve the younger. Why? Because that was his choice from way back before he created the world. Like it was already decided who he was going to pick. Like that's the amazing thing. Like he doesn't change his mind on the spot and be like, hmm, I think, you know, I was going to go with plan A, but I like plan B.2 over this way. And I, that looks a lot better. And let's, let's do it. No, like that's not how God works, um, especially when it comes to our salvation. Like he chooses us, therefore, at the right time, he brings us to faith and his purposes take place in our lives, just like it did with Jacob. But also, verse 13 is important. Um, when he says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, he's actually quoting from Malachi chapter 1. Um, and, you know, in that verse, he's, you know, God's basically questioning, I mean, uh, the people of God are questioning God's love for them. And God's like, uh, you know, I've loved you. And they're like, well, how have you loved us? And God's like, well, well, here's how, um, you know, Jacob, I loved Esau. I hated, look at what you've got. Esau's never going to have my blessing. Esau's never going to have my favor. The people of Edom, um, you know, they're going to try to build and do all this, but I'm going to frustrate their plans. And, and so some people try to say, well, Paul's just talking about nations here, but in reality, he's talking about individuals. How do we know that? One, Jacob is an individual. This is talking about Jacob's salvation. Yes, the people of Israel come from Jacob, but he's talking about Jacob first. But even if you want to think about the, the effect of nations on this, um, nations are made up of individuals. And so even if you want to go that way, what does that mean? God said the whole descendants of Esau are outside the realm of salvation. That's still election. And that's specific individuals within a nation that God's saying no to. And then you look at Israel and God's saying yes to them. He's choosing some, rejecting others. But here's the other thing. People, they want to, and, and Piper, I thought, did a great job bringing this out. They talk about Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. You, you all can find Malachi. Turn there real quick. This, this, is, this is worth seeing. It's the last book of the Old Testament right before Matthew. Um, this, is, this is what God says. Uh, Malachi chapter 1, you, you can see what, where Paul's drawing from. Look at verses 2 through, um, we'll just read 2 through 4. He says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother? So again, saying, look, they both came from the same place. So, you know, how, how, how has God loved Israel? This is what he says. I have loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. And some people try to say, well, hated, it just means he loved less. Which I, I want to say, even if it did mean that, it's still showing preference of one over the other Absolutely. before the Lord. So it doesn't change the argument. But yeah, I, yes. I think it means more than because that. Because people don't like the fact that we have, the, a lot of, we have this inborn reaction to say, well, God wouldn't hate somebody. God loves everybody the same, right? Well, this is what it means that God hated Esau. Look at verse 3. I have laid waste his hill country, left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says we're shattered, but we'll rebuild, what does God say? They may build, but I will tear down. They will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. So you think about it, that's what it means that God hated Esau. It's not just that, well, he loved them both so much and he just loved Jacob a little more. No, he chose Jacob to receive his blessings and Esau to get curses and, and punishment. 
I mean, no, no, just, just yeah. so that means Jacob is in the covenant people. Right. His nickname is Israel, right? Yeah. And Esau is outside of the covenant people. He's part of Edom. So even if we're talking about nations in some sense here, we're talking about who the covenant people are and who the covenant people are not. So you still have the same yes. problem on your hands. Yeah. And so just last thing I'll say on this before we get back to Romans 9. Um, the point is the whole Jacob I loved, es Esau I hated. Like, what does it mean that he hated Esau? Like, not just that he loved him less, but I mean, Esau was cut off from the blessings of God and he got disaster and ruin for his future. So don't minimize what the, the scripture because it makes us uncomfortable. Well, surely God wouldn't say that. No, God actually said that. So, so let's go back to Romans 9 because my guess is <clears throat> the first time someone's ever heard this if, this, if this is the first time you've ever heard this, the, the first question you want to ask is that doesn't sound fair. Isn't that the first question everyone wants to ask when they hear that before the twins were born, God preferred one over the other? Like, the first instinct is, that's not fair. That's not just, right? So let's see if Paul is thinking in the way we're thinking. Romans 9, verse 14, what is the very next question Paul anticipates from us? What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Now, just stop here. No one ever heard Arminianism, that you get what you want. and you. No one ever heard that and said, that doesn't sound just. Right? Arminianism sounds inherently just. You just get what you choose. Like it just makes, but, but this system of God choosing the one over the other apart from anything in them, unconditional election, sounds incredibly unfair. It sounds unjust. So what does Paul know? The first question you're going to ask is, that doesn't sound just. And this is how we know that Paul actually is teaching what we think he's teaching here. Otherwise, he would never anticipate the question that God might be unrighteous. Why would he be thinking that you're thinking that, reading this? Because he knows exactly what it sounds like, and he's got an answer for you. Is God unjust to choose one over the other apart from anything in them? That sounds unjust. By no means. Now look, he gives some reasons. Reason number one, verse 15. For because God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Here's answer number one. If you think it's unjust of God to put eternal grace on one child and to leave the other child, Esau, to his own devices, you don't understand what mercy is. Mercy is definitionally undeserved. So if God left both the twins in a state of destruction and allowed them both to live and die in unrepentant sin, God would have been perfectly just. So you can't start arguing God's being unjust. What you can say is God is giving better than Jacob deserves to Jacob. You can't say he's giving worse than Esau deserves to Esau, okay? So if there's anything unfair, it's grace. It's not justice. It, it, God is being, what, what we should be shocked by is that God chose the rascal Jacob to be an heir of the blessing. We shouldn't be shocked that Esau turned out to be Esau, right? That, that's how we should be thinking here. So number one, it's not unjust because how could God be unjust to give mercy? It's mercy. But then look, he, he draws a conclusion, verse 16. So then... It, which is God's election, it depends. Now, this is here, this is just blows Arminianism up right here. What does election depend on? Verse 16. It depends, you see this, not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. That's the death knell of Arminianism, that verse. Election, God's electing choice, depends on what? Let me read it again. It does not depend, literally in the Greek, on him who wills or him who runs. Human will or exertion, what does election depend on? God who chooses who to give mercy to. That's, that's the bottom of the whole discussion. At rock bottom, God's electing mercy is determined by God, not by your will. So this is, this is important. Justification is by faith. Election is not. Election is by God. That's why in verse 
12, it says, look one more time, or verse, uh, end of verse 11, end of verse 11, that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of faith? No. Not because of works, but because of God who calls. So it's God's sovereign electing call that uh, brings that about. Well, and that's important because the majority of the times where Paul makes a contrast with works, it's with faith. Mm -hmm. But this is unique because Paul understands we got to get this point clear. The, 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 the reason God chose you is not because you did anything, even responded in faith, but because he chose you. And therefore, you will have faith uh, at the right time. Look at the okay, very next thing here, verse 17. <clears throat> this is a second reason why God is not unjust to mercy some and to not mercy others. So verse 17. For, because the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Now, the, the Piper is so good on this question. How is that an argument? And here's, I think, the answer. What's God's reason for hardening some like Pharaoh? What's his reason? It's for his own glory. I raised Pharaoh up for this purpose that I might show my power to him and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God hardened Pharaoh and the Egyptians so that God could show off his glory over Egypt and their false gods. So you can't say God is hardening unrighteously when his motive is the essence of righteousness, God's glory. See, so God mercies whoever he mercies, and he hardens according to his own glory who he hardens. And uh, one more implication, verse 18, so then, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Uh, Greg, can you take us into the next objection here? Yeah, verse 19. Again, the Arminian position, and I'm not saying this to try to score rhetorical points, but if the Arminian position is true, then Paul's questions don't make any sense. The objections that he's answering, it's like they're pointless because they're already answered in the, in the teaching. But if God is sovereign in election, and he has, verse 18, whoever he will, whomever he wills, he shows mercy or he hardens you. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Do you see? If Paul was not teaching unconditional sovereign election, he would not have to ask that question. Because, well, obviously, you didn't choose God. Like, that, that's why. But Paul's saying, look, the reason why Pharaoh was the way he was and did what he did was ultimately because God hardened him in his sin. And he did that to show his glory and power and make his name known. That was the purpose of Pharaoh's existence, was to be a display, a, a foil, if you will, uh, for God to showcase his glory to the world. You say, well, wait a minute, how, how can God be mad at Pharaoh then? And so this is what is interesting. Paul does not answer according to the question. Look at verse 20. This is one of the most humbling verses in the Bible. He says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? It's like, know your role, know your place. You don't question God in this. Like that, that is the height of of arrogance, the height of human pride, the height of human sinfulness, to dare rise up to God and say something like, you, you, you must answer me for this, God. You have to, you have to answer. Remember, that's, Job tried doing that and it didn't end well for him. Um, Job, you know, initially he didn't say anything wrong with God. Where Job went wrong was when he demanded God answer him. 
And God's like, okay, if you, if you can thunder like my voice, if you can be here and you can do this and you can control that, you can be back at the beginning and all these things. And Job's like, I need to shut up. Okay, I mean, that's where Job got to. And so that Paul is drawing from that same line of rebuke here. If we get to the point and say, well, God can't find fault with me. Nobody can resist his will. Paul's like, you are a fool to answer back to God. And then he uses an illustration here. He says, well, what is molded Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Verse 21, drawing from Old Testament imagery, I think it's Jeremiah. He says, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And just pause there. Like, we don't like to think of ourselves in these terms. I'm a human being. I have choice and I have free will. Don't tell me I'm just a lump of clay that God can do with whatever he wants. I'm not telling you that. Paul is. Paul's telling you that. And if anything, like we, we have stressed repeatedly, God's sovereignty does not eliminate our responsibility. But Paul is saying in the biggest possible view, we are lumps of clay and God can do with you and with me as he pleases according to his wisdom for his glory. And there's not one person who can ever lay any kind of legitimate charge against God as though he did something wrong in that. That's good. And we're, I know we're almost over time here, but this, the next two verses are so critical. And maybe on another week, we could talk about them in more depth. But 22 and 23, I think, are two of the most ultimate verses on this topic in the Bible. Uh, these, are, these are amazing verses. Romans 9, 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known, why would God do that? In order to make known the riches of his glory, his glory is the bottom line, for vessels of mercy, that's his elect, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So as we wrap up here, I think the Exodus Red Sea crossing is the perfect example of what Paul says here. Okay, so I'll just stand up here. I know we're closing. So in the, in the Exodus story here, does, does God have a plan to show his wrath and to make known his power against Pharaoh and the Egyptians? Yes. Is that ultimately for his glory? Yes. And then look at this. He endured the Egyptians with much patience as vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in the Red Sea, right? Why did God do that? In order to make known the riches of his glory for the Israelite vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. You see that? That's sort of a picture of what God is doing in election in the New Testament in terms of salvation. Uh, why is it the way it is? Well, God ultimately uh, chooses vessels of mercy in order to show the unimaginable, counter-deserved, undeserved blessing of God's grace. And part of that is seen in the fact that not everyone ends up saved at the end. And some, some of God's very mercy is seen in the display of his wrath and power against those whom he passes over, the vessels of wrath. So Jerry, some closing thoughts here, and then we'll pray. Yeah, it looks like two, two things, and neither of them can, are always intellectually satisfying back to verse 11 why does god do what he does in order that god's purpose of election might continue so we might say well wait a second that really doesn't explain it and neither did as greg you put it so well um 19 to 21 where god says that's really above your pay grade stay in your lane a little bit and uh the rest uh is is going to be up to god and we can be so humbled and thankful for that, and especially as believers, so undeserved, so much mercy. Can you pray for us, dear? Yeah. Father, we're humbled, we're grateful, we are overwhelmed by this kind of mercy that you would 
uh, choose us before the beginning of time. Give us uh, the faith to believe the gospel. And uh, Lord, we pray for our loved ones who have yet to know Jesus, that you would uh, grip their hearts and give them the faith to believe the gospel as well. Um, Help us, Lord, to grasp the truth, that it would be a warm blanket to us of great comfort, and uh, we would have a deep thankfulness um, for our Lord Jesus, and um, that you really aren't going by um, what we think, but that your thoughts are higher than our thoughts and your ways are higher than our ways. We're so grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.